Now, obviously, I have no idea where each one of you might be in your journey of faith this morning. I feel like I've been trying to follow Jesus for a long time. But I still find myself challenged by a pretty fundamental question, and that's this. Are Jesus and I really interested in the same things? Because I know what I'm interested in. And I could give you a list of all those things, and you probably have, could make a list of all the things that you're interested in. But what if, what if we set all those things aside for a moment? And what if we asked from first principles, but what is God interested in? What is God passionate about? What makes God's heart just beat really fast? And in fact, would people know what God is passionate about just by looking at what it is that we are passionate about? This morning, I'd like to spend just a few minutes talking about two of the more unfamiliar passions of God. And those are God's passion, first of all, for the world, and then secondly, his passion for justice. First, God's passion for the world. We all would know from the Bible that it teaches that God loves the world, right? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Right? The whole incarnation, the whole coming of God into the world in the person of Jesus was motivated by his huge love for the world. And that means all these gajillion people, right, that are spread across all these confusing continents and cultures. This is what God loves. And this is what Louis and the team are experiencing as they go to South Africa and Kampala, places very far away, people unfamiliar. But what will they find is that God is pouring out his love upon all those people. God loves this huge, huge world. Now, by contrast, what do I love? What am I really interested in? What am I passionate about? Well, to tell you the truth, every single day I am totally passionate about me. I love me. I'm fascinated by me every day. Right? I don't have to wake up in the morning and remind myself to think of me. I, it just seems to come pretty naturally. Now, this is perhaps more narrow than I should be as a Christian, my pastor tells me. And so I'm trying to broaden my heart out a little bit, right? And on a really good day, I will actually find myself extending love and compassion to all the people in the universe who are in my immediate family. <laughs> this is a pretty good day, actually, in my household where I'll extend more love and compassion to Jan and the kids than I will to myself and they usually circle that day on the calendar and they pray that it happens again next year maybe. And, and then maybe I'll have some larger spiritual experience and I will start to find my heart growing and I will find myself extending love and compassion to everybody in the universe that I like and who likes me and who is like me. See, this then becomes my world of passion and focus and energy, this little shriveled world of me and mine. Now, I imagine that Jesus finds this pretty natural. This is all very understandable, but I don't think that everything that is natural and understandable is necessarily godly. So maybe 
we together this morning can at least agree upon what the goal is. And even if we're not there yet, we can agree that the goal is to have a heart that's becoming like the heart of Jesus, that shares something of his love and passion for the world. Now, I grew up in church and heard that message about God's love for the world, but I, I don't think I really got it in such a powerful way as when I was sent to this little country in Africa called Rwanda in 1994. In 1994, my wife and I were living in, in Washington, D.C. I was a federal prosecutor uh, serving with the U.S. Department of Justice. And suddenly, there was this horrific genocide that broke out in Rwanda, and about 800,000 people were murdered in about eight weeks' time. If you can imagine, that's like having September 11 happen three times a day, every day, for eight solid weeks. And when it was over, the international community wanted to try to bring the perpetrators of the genocide to justice, and so I was sent over to be the, the director of the UN's genocide investigation. And all, all murder investigations just begin with where the bodies are. And so I was given a list of about 100 different mass graves and massacre sites where I would go with our teams and we would just begin to sort through tens of thousands of people who'd been butchered by their neighbors. Most of the killing was actually done in churches because the Tutsis would run to the churches for sanctuary, but then their Hutu neighbors would wade into them and just hack them all to death. And the hardest part of this for me actually was not through sorting through thousands and thousands of murdered people. The hardest part was actually having to interview some of the survivors, and especially the little children who had survived these massacres. And I remember one day I had to, I had to interview this little girl who had survived a massacre inside one of these churches, and she was just eight years old. And she had been laying amongst the dead for about two and a half days. And I was sitting across from this little table and I, I was trying to get her story from her. And the first thing you would have noticed about her was the first thing I noticed, which was really just how, how beautiful she was. She had these eyes that just twinkled. And then she'd say something funny and make herself laugh. And then these, these white teeth would just burst across her face. And she was gorgeous. And I remember looking into the face of this little girl when it occurred to me in a way that I had never thought of before. And that is that the maker of the entire universe specifically intended that this one little eight-year-old Rwandan girl should exist. Not only that, but he intended that she should exist to be with him forever. And he wanted this particular little girl to be with him forever so desperately that he was willing to give up his own son to be tortured and murdered just to make sure that this one little eight-year-old Rwandan girl would be with him forever. And suddenly I was just blown away by the cosmic significance of this one little eight-year-old Rwandan girl. But I also knew from the pink machete scars across the back of her head and her neck that she was just about a millimeter of a machete blow from being part of just that huge pile of corpses outside the church. So then it occurred to me that 800,000 other Rwandans 
who were just as precious to God as this little girl, they could all just drop off the face of the earth, right? And for me as an American Christian, it just wouldn't affect my day at all. And suddenly I could sense that there was a significant difference between the way Jesus was regarding the world and the way I was regarding the world. And frankly, I didn't want to be that far away from what really mattered to my Savior. And so now it's been a process for me to try to open up the borders of my heart beyond the little shriveled world of just me and mine and try, and try to share something of his passion and love for the world. But you know, what's interesting is you do that. As you go into that world and you try to share something of the love of God with that world, what do you think is probably the most difficult thing for people in our world to believe about the Christian faith? I think it's simply the idea that God is good because they're in so much pain today. You know, there will be about 20,000 children in our world today who are just going to die today. Why? Because their parents can't get them enough food. And as they're suffering and dying and, and passing, how are those parents somehow supposed to believe that God is so good? Or what about the 1.5 billion people on our globe who have no access to medical care? Right? They're not wondering about whether or not their medical plan will allow them to choose their doctor or not, right? They, they don't get a doctor. And when their children are suffering and hurting the way ours do, and they have no access to medical care, how are they supposed to somehow believe that God is so good? Or what about the hundreds of thousands of children who just live this morning, will wake up just alone and abandoned on the streets in the big urban centers around the world? When they wake up alone again and abandoned, I mean, how are they supposed to find it believable that God is good? In fact, think about this with me. What is God's plan for making it believable that he is good for those who are hurting and suffering so much in our world today? What's his plan? Well, the answer from the Bible is a little bit surprising because it turns out that we're the plan, and that God doesn't have another plan. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 5? He said, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine among men that they will see your good works and then give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, I love this because you'll notice that Jesus doesn't say, you might be the light of the world, or you could be the light of the world, or I sure hope you turn out to be the light of the world. Rather, he says to us, you're it. You are the light of the world. That's why the Apostle Paul says one of the most amazing things in all of Scripture, if you think about it. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, he says, God is making his appeal to the world through us. And so for 2,000 years, Christians have been trying to make it believable that God is good, especially to those who are suffering and hurting in our world. And if there are people who, 
who've never, if there are people who've never heard the story that God loves them and sent Christ to die for them, we're the ones who actually get to go to them and share with them that story. And if others are suffering because they don't have food, then we can help them with that. And if others are suffering because they don't have medicine or doctors, then we can help them with that. And if others are suffering like that family in, in South Africa because they don't have shelter, then we can actually help them have a home. And when they see us, the body of Christ, show up, it becomes believable to them that God is good. Imagine that family in South Africa, no shelter, crying out to God. All of a sudden, God's people show up and make it believable that he is good. But you know, it's interesting because there's another category of people in our world who are suffering. And it's worth thinking about because it's rather interesting. They're not suffering because they don't have access to the gospel. They're not suffering because they don't have food or because they don't have medicine or shelter. Why are they suffering? They're suffering because of the intentional abuse and oppression of other people. These are the victims of injustice in the world. Now, you might ask, okay, Gary, okay, what is injustice anyways, right? Because that's a word that's pretty useless in America, right? Injustice means everything. It means nothing. And as an American, I pretty much feel like I'm a victim of injustice like all day, every day, right? <laughs> like I'm at the grocery store the other day. I don't know. I, you guys at, the, at your grocery store, they have like express lanes, right? And like I'm always in the express lane. I'm in a hurry. I got to get out of there, get my supplies, get out of here, get going, right? And I'm there in the express lane, but there's rules to the express lane, right? And in my particular uh, grocery store, the big sign says 10 items only. So I'm there the other day, I got my grocery cart, 10 items, ready to go, in a hurry, guy in front of me, 13 items. <laughs> I mean, he's totally like jamming up the express lane and he's totally breaking the law, right? I'm, I'm getting so mad, I want to sue the guy and I'm a lawyer and I could do this, you know, I'm just <laughs> so mad. Well, just so you know, when the Bible talks about injustice, this is not really what it's talking about. Injustice in the Bible is interesting. It's a particular kind of sin. Injustice is about the abuse of power. The abuse of power to take from someone else who is weaker the good things that God intended for them. Their life, their liberty, their dignity the fruit of their love and their labor. And when someone who is stronger just comes along and takes those things away just because they can, God calls this the, the sin of injustice. This is why it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1, Behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. But on the side of the oppressor was power. Right? This is the sin that King David commits right? when he abuses his power as king to steal another man's wife. And then he uses that power to actually steal that man's life. And the prophet Nathan has to go confront him for his sin, the abuse of power. Well, what does injustice, the abuse of power, look like in our world today? Not hundreds or thousands of years ago, but today in our world. 
Well, in 1997, as Todd mentioned, I left my job at the U.S. Department of Justice and began with others to build a ministry called International Justice Mission, IJM. And we're simply a collection of Christian lawyers and criminal investigators and social workers. And what do we do? Well, we take on cases of the most violent abuse and oppression that takes place in very poor communities around the world. We now have 15 offices around the world serving in places of, of just devastating violence. And in fact, we have an office right now in Kampala in, the, in Uganda focusing on widows and orphans who get thrown off their land. And what we do is we actually take on those individual cases, rescue the victims from the abuse, and see that the perpetrators are brought to justice. We provide long-term aftercare for the victims and then work with those local authorities so that they can be effective in actually protecting the weak from abuse and from injustice. And so now after 15 years of this, I have a pretty clear idea of what injustice looks like in our world. And I'll never forget meeting a little boy in India named Kumar. When Kumar was about five years old, his mom and dad died. He was living in a very poor rural area of India. And by the age of eight, he was actually sold into a brick factory as a slave. And this is how Kumar lived his life. He just would wake up every single day, work 12 to 14 hours a day making and carrying bricks. He was owned by the slave owner who owned this brick factory, who also kept about 70 other slaves in this factory. And even on days when Kumar was too sick to work, the owner would just kick him in the head and send him right back to work. Kumar doesn't go to school. He doesn't play with his friends. He works 12 to 14 hours a day making breaks, and he does it year after year after year. In India, it's estimated that there are somewhere between 10 and 15 million children held illegally in slavery. I took my twin daughters when they were 13 years old to India so they could see children who were held in slavery in their own time, not hundreds of years ago. My colleagues and I have met thousands of these slaves by name. And so the question is, how today is Kumar living in that kind of slavery or the other millions of children, how are they supposed to somehow find it believable that God is so good? Or what about Alina? She was a, a poor uh, Filipino girl living in a rural province. And when she was 11 years old, she was very brutally raped. And the thing that made it even more horrible, though, was that the, the man who had committed the assault was the chief of police in her town. The man who had, had been given power as chief of police to protect the weak was abusing that power to actually take everything from little Alina. In the communities that we work in around the world, up to 40% of the girls in the poorest communities of, of the world are victims of rape or attempted rape by the age of 14. And so for Alina and all these other girls who are subject to such violence, how is it supposed to seem believable to them that God is good? Or what about Jyoti? I met Jyoti in India. She was 16 years old. She was living with her family, but they were very poor. And one day, some women came to her and said, Hey, Jyoti, why don't you come with us to the big city, and we'll get you a, a job, and then you can send some of that money home to her family. So Jyoti went with these women, but on the way there, they gave her some tea that was drugged. And she fell unconscious, and they took her to the red light district in Mumbai, Bombay. 
And they sold her into a brothel, stuffed her into an underground room underneath the brothel, and just beat her for three days with plastic pipes and electrical cords and metal rods until she's forced to provide sex to the customers there. Jyoti has to service between 20 and 30 men a day, seven days a week, never let outside of that room. And UNICEF tells us that there's more than a million children taken into forced prostitution new every year around our world and even around our own city of Atlanta. And so for those who are hidden in these dark places of unspeakable abuse, how are they somehow supposed to believe that God is good? In fact, how does God regard all of this painful suffering in our world? How how does he think about it? Well, I'm so grateful that we had a chance to hear Psalm 10 read to us earlier in the service. It's a psalm that I'm sure I had read before, but I... It never resonated with me until I was there in Rwanda. And all of a sudden, I I saw that Psalm 10 is speaking of of this great darkness, this abuse, this violence, because the psalmist knows all about it. But here's what he affirms about God. In verses 17 and 18, it says, You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry. Defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. Over and over again in Scripture, we learn that this is a God who yearns to bring rescue. He wants the violence to stop. Psalm 35.10 says it this way, Who, O Lord, is like you? You rescue the poor from those too strong for them. You rescue the poor and needy from those who would rob them. Over and over again in, Bible, in the Bible, it's just so clear that God has a passion to bring justice. In fact, we've written this little book. It's called The Good News About Injustice. Well, what is the good news about injustice? The good news is God's against it. And it turns out that this matters in our world. Ours is a God who is yearning today to bring rescue to all the Alinas and the Joytis and the Kumars. But this has always just raised another question in my mind, which is, well, that's great, God, that you want to bring rescue. But what's your plan for actually doing that? Once again, the answer from the Bible is a little surprising because it turns out that we're the plan and that God doesn't have another plan. We're all familiar with Micah chapter 6, verse 8, right? Where it says, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? Isn't that an amazing, like, start to a verse? Where it's going to say, he has told you what is good and what does the Lord require of you? God Almighty is going to tell you what's good and what's required of you. And then I'm thinking, oh, it's going to be this super long list of, like, 45,000 things that I'm supposed to do, and I can't even remember them all, and I'm in trouble again because I'm not doing probably 16,000 of them. What does it say? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? And then a short list of three things. Do justice. Love mercy and walk humbly with your God. The first thing on the short list of three is to do justice. Jesus repeats the same list in Matthew 23, 23, when he says to the the Pharisees, he rebukes them because they've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. 
Isaiah 117 makes it super clear because it says, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. So for those of us who are coming to take the Bible seriously anyways, there can be no doubt that God has given to us the work of justice in the world. But you'll notice when we, when we find out that we're God's like super smart plan for addressing injustice in the world, it's not like we all stand up. It's like, oh, great idea, God. We're all ready to go. If you're like me, you're kind of looking left and right. And it's like, okay, God, we're just brainstorming here and no ideas are bad, but uh, this is a bad plan. <laughs> I mean, we're pretty good about the evangelism stuff and the feeding people, but the like, violent injustice stuff? What, what's plan B for this one, God? He doesn't have a plan B. And it can be so difficult for us because when we hear all these stories and statistics, right, we can just feel bolted to our chairs with despair. We can feel so powerless. But in those moments, I think it's really helpful to remember this little story from the Gospels when the disciples were feeling exactly the same way. This is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Does everybody remember how this story begins? It actually starts with Jesus. He's been teaching a long time, and so everybody's getting hungry. And so the disciples have a brilliant idea. They actually go to Jesus, and they say, Hey, Jesus, why don't you send everybody home so they can get themselves fed? See, if the disciples had had their way, this would have been the famous story of when 5,000 people went home and got themselves their own lunch, right? No one would remember that story. And so Jesus decided he'd sort of take advantage of the situation. And so he says to the disciples, no, guys, you just feed them. And this is what you've got to love about the disciples is just that they're always so patient to explain to Jesus what he clearly doesn't understand about this situation, right? <laughs> And they say, oh, Jesus, see, we would love to do that. But there's 5,000 hungry people here. And it would take, I don't know, half year's wages to be able to feed them all. And we just, we don't really have that kind of cash on us today. So back to you, Jesus. <laughs> and then what does Jesus say? He simply says, well, what do you have? Well, they don't have nothing, so they have to present what they do have, which if you remember, it's the little boy with the sack lunch, right, that his mom had packed for him to go hear Jesus. And it has five loaves and two fish in it. And this is then presented as the corporate resources to meet this massive need. And then this is when the apostle Andrew enters the discussion because he has a, I don't know, he was sort of the smart apostle. He had a, probably a graduate degree from Emory in public policy or something, and and he looks at these five loaves and two fish, and what does he say? He says, what are these among so many? See, this would be me, honestly, because I also went to college, and I took a math course, and you got 5,000 hungry people, and you got five loaves and two fish, and honestly, if you were as sophisticated as I am, and you understood the deeper sociological roots of the situation, you'd see there's... There's really nothing for us to do but to sit in the paralysis of despair. <laughs> but what does Jesus say? He simply says, give, give it to me. 
what do you have and will you give it to me? And in that moment, Jesus takes responsibility for the miracle and proceeds to feed 5,000 to overflowing. You'll notice that Jesus didn't ask the disciples for what was necessary. He just asked, would they offer what they had to him so that he could do the miracles? Do you know that Kumar is not living in slavery anymore? In fact, IJM's local Indian team was able to do an undercover investigation and expose the slavery that was taking place in that factory, mobilize a police raid on that uh, brick factory and rescue Kumar and all of those slaves, 70 of those slaves, out and get them to freedom. <laughs> Not only that, but all those former slaves are in, were in a two-year program of economic rehabilitation where they are now standing on their own two feet and all the children are in school. Kumar was able to go to school. He's doing very well, in fact, doing so well that he actually serves as an intern with International Justice Mission in India and has helped rescue hundreds of other people from slavery. And here's what Kumar will tell you. He actually knows that God is good. And he believes that there is a God who not only sent his son to rescue him for eternity, but came into his darkness and showed his love so tangibly. And now he wants to share that with others. Likewise for Alina, She's no longer just trembling in fear because the most powerful man in her town can just abuse her with impunity. Our local Filipino IJM lawyers were able to take on her case, able to not only get that police chief removed from office, but actually properly convicted, and he will sit and spend the rest of his life in prison for that assault. And what that does is it changes the whole calculation in that community about what the men of power can do to little girls. And not only that, but Alina has gone on to college now where she's studying mass communications, and she's become a mentor to other young teenage girls who are going through the same experience, and they need to know that there is a God who sees them and loves them, and Alina already knows that because she's seen the God of love show up for her through the people of God. Likewise for Joti. She isn't being serially raped inside that brothel anymore. One of our IJM undercover investigators was able to find her inside that brothel. We then mobilized a raid with the local police and got Jyoti out, out to a place of Christian aftercare where she was able to come to know Jesus as her, as her personal savior. But you know, that phrase, Jesus, my personal savior, is sort of easy for us to say in the abstract, but for her, there's nothing abstract about it because Jesus showed up inside her nightmare. The body of Christ went into her darkness and brought her out. In fact, she was so inspired by that experience that she actually said, look, I know where other children are being held. Can I lead you on another police raid to rescue them out? And so Joe T led us on a second police raid that rescued seven more girls out of a brothel. In fact, one of them was a girl named Kalindi. And Kalindi was so transformed by that experience that she said, you know what? I know where even more girls are being held. And Kalindi took us back on a third police raid. And she took us to this underground dungeon where on this day we were able to take out 24 of these children who were being held in a place of unspeakable darkness. 
but they were able to come out of that darkness and into the light of God's love because the body of Christ showed up for Jyoti. And then Jyoti showed up for Kalindi. And then Kalindi showed up for these girls. So now it becomes believable to them that God is good. You know, if you think about that story of the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus fed all those people. I mean, why did Jesus do it the way that he did? I mean, if people are hungry and he's God, I mean, I don't know, why didn't he just dump manna on everybody, right? Manna, eat up, get back to the teaching, you know? Why did Jesus do it the way that he did? I personally think he did it for just one reason. I think he wanted to give one little boy a very cool day. Right? Do you picture this? Of course, he goes back home to his mom who packed his lunch, right? And says, Mom, guess what Jesus did with my lunch today? He fed 5,000 people. <laughs> Do we imagine that that little boy will ever in his life forget that day? And yet what a small day he would have had if he'd just gone away to eat his own lunch. A full stomach but a small day. And did Jesus really need the lunch in order to do the miracle? Or did he maybe just love that little boy so much that he just wanted to say, wait, 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 wait. Watch what I can do with your lunch today. What does all of this mean for you and for me? I'd like to just suggest a couple very practical things. First, Perhaps it suggests a season of rediscovering God's passion for justice in the scriptures. There is a world of great injustice and abuse going on right now in our world, and people are going to be looking to the people of God for some answers. Your children one day will look to you for answers. Your neighbors will be looking to you for answers. When they see those things on the news, when they hear about the ugliness, when it happens in their own lives, they will want to know what's the truth about this God. And we will want answers. Answers not only that we can say, but we can live. And the Bible is full of teachings about the hope and power of God. We've got some resources, good news about injustice, some other books in the bookstore that I would just encourage you to get a hold of so you can go deep into the scripture and rediscover God's passion for justice, but also his promise to go with us in the fight. What I can tell you after 15 years of looking at the hardest, most cruel, most brutal violence in the world is that the God of justice will go with his people to fight it. And that is a hope and a joy we need to show the world. Let's return to the scriptures so we can live in love and courage. Secondly, I would encourage you to, to bring your influence, to move those in power to, to be a voice on behalf of those who don't have power. You might know that just this past week, something very historic happened. The president of the United States gave the second longest speech that a pres an American president's ever given on slavery. The previous one who did that was Abraham Lincoln. This week, the president of the United States gave an entire speech on the problem of modern-day slavery. And I had the chance to meet with him uh, before that speech this week. And he commented about the importance of all of the students who came forth at the Passion Conference and that what you've been doing here in Passion City 
who combined to, to produce 73,000 letters that Louie and I delivered to the President of the United States a few months ago. And the power of that moved him to put down a marker and say to the slaves and those who are suffering from human trafficking in the world, we see you and the people of the United States are going to be on your side. See, you brought together your voice and it was heard and it moved people of power because you brought your influence to bear. There's people who you know, you respect, who, who listen to you. And the fact that you will share with them these needs in the world and the promises of God will change things. You also have the capacity to pray for those who are in need. At IJM, we have a, an email that goes out every Friday with urgent prayer needs for those who are suffering from injustice. And I encourage you to get on our list to be able to receive those so you can pray for, for not only for the victims, but also to see the miracles that God does. I also would encourage you to, to realize that you can actually help pay for the rescue the poor cannot afford. Alina couldn't afford to have a lawyer. Joti couldn't afford to have an investigator come find her, but we can. And if you go to IJM's website at IJM.org, you can see opportunities there to, to be involved. Right now, we're in Uganda, uh, up in the north, opening a new office in Gulu, part of the area where uh, Louis and his team are uh, sending folks to visit, addressing the problem of widows and orphans being violently thrown off their land. You can be a part of that. You can also visit the website and become a freedom maker, a freedom partner. And, and that's sort of the monthly way to sponsor rescue operations and the bringing of God's hope and love to those who are in the most desperate places. That could be you. Go to the website and check it out. But here's the main thing. Don't miss the invitation from the God who made you to actually use you in the struggle for injustice in the world. You know, I close with this, that when I was growing up, I... I used to always be a bit struggling with the question of why in a world of so much suffering and hurt and need, why have I been given so much? Do you ever think about this? I mean, there's all this hurt and poverty, and yet I have so much. I mean, why have I been given so much? And when I was younger, I, I always wanted to be a, a really great football player, I'll tell you this, and, uh, but sadly, I turned out to be kind of a crummy football player. And the good thing was, though, I had two older brothers who would explain to me why I was a bad football player. <laughs> and they, they would sit me down and they'd say, well, Gary, see, you're small, but you're slow. <laughs> that was helpful in a weird way. And so what I would do, of course, is I would go to the weight room, right, and work out and try to get bigger just so I wouldn't get crushed so badly on the football field. And I'd work out and nothing would happen to my body, but I would, I'd go and I'd work out like crazy. And I'd be working out in the weight room and I'd always notice over in their special section of the gym were the bodybuilders. Have you seen these guys in the gym? I mean, they're just huge, right? Huge chests and neck and arms and legs and... <gasps> I used to just look at all that muscle mass and all that strength and all that power. And I used to just ask, but what's it all for? <laughs> it's for posing. <laughs> and the only time all that strength and power is ever really brought to bear is there's there's that crisis in the kitchen when the, when the jam jar is stuck in a, and they pop open the jam jar. 
my prayer for us and for Passion City is that God will not leave us opening jam jars, but he'll rescue us from all things too petty, rescue us from all things of fear, and use us with power in the world to bring hope to those who need it today. Will you pray with me? Kind Father, thank you for the gentle and patient way you allow us to know you more deeply. Father, we came in here and we actually prayed and we asked that you would give us some word of truth from you that would actually make us different. Help us, Father, now to leave with this truth from you and with this inspiration in our hearts from you and help us to live differently in your world. And may it all bring you glory, Jesus. For it's in your name, Savior, we pray. Amen.